If you're visiting us, we are going through the Gospel of Luke. And today we are going to look at the death of Jesus Christ and the events that accompany that death. And I guess this is a uh, Sunday where the messages are centered on death. The pastor talked about Jacob's death and uh, the kind of death that he died, if you want to use that, and then Joseph's death and what his experiences were. And today we're going to look at Jesus' death. And Luke puts this in a setting that's very interesting. He relates Jesus' death to events that are surrounding uh, the crucifixion. And he relates it, first of all, to time. If you look at chapter 23 and verse 44, notice Christ's death in relationship to time. It says, now it was about the sixth hour. Uh, that means that Jesus dies, or he's hanging on the cross, and he's in the uh, throes of death at high noon. This is when the sun is at its brightest. And so you can imagine that particular scene. But then he relates it to the climbing. Because look what he says also in verse 44. Even though it was a high noon, it says there was a darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. That means until three o'clock. So even though the sun is at its highest and it's at its brightest, uh, darkness overtakes the light as Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now, Luke wants us to understand that this happened literally and it happened uh, Physically, In other words, it was a darkness that overtook that land. Uh, but he also wants to stir our memory. Because when you look at that word darkness, it should cause you to think of something else. Does it remind you of a previous darkness? Back, for example, one chapter in verse... Uh, this would be chapter 22 and verse 53. Uh, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when he says, I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to arrest me then, but this is your hour. He's talking to that the posse that comes after him. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So when he says darkness overtakes the land, he wants us to know that that physical darkness that blocked out the sunlight represents evil. Evil is at work at this time. He would also want us to remember the Old Testament prophets that talked about the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness and a day of gloom. And he's saying this is the beginning of the last days when God is eventually going to judge the world. So we see this darkness, and he relates it to the climate. But then notice what he says in uh, verse chapter 23 and verse 45. The sun was darkened, and then he relates it to a curtain. He says, and the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now this would have been the temple. It was up on the mount. And the veil, you there were two veils in the temple. One was an outer veil and one was an inner veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And only once a year could the high priest go behind that veil into the holy of holies and make an atonement for sin. Now Luke tells us that that veil was torn, which shows us, and we know from other scriptures, it was torn from top to bottom. This was God's doing that veil was 40 feet high. Now, I don't know how high this roof is, but it's about 8 feet. So five times higher than that. Made up of different layers of linen and possibly even lambskin. And that was very thick. 
several inches thick. It was a heavy piece of material that weighed thousands of pounds. No one could tear that veil. So the fact that Luke says, and the veil in the temple was torn, he's saying even in the midst of the evil, God was working. Amen. Now, we can give a bunch of theories why the temple was torn. Is it because God is going to judge Israel and he's saying, no longer am I going to give my blessings on the temple? Possibly. But Luke doesn't say that, does he? Does he give us an explanation? No. It could mean that now that the veil in the temple is torn in half, everybody has access to God. Not only the high priest once a year, but that everyone can come into God's presence all the time. No longer through the high priest as a mediator, but through Jesus Christ and his death. He's the new mediator. Amen. Is that possible? Yes, but Luke doesn't say that, does he? All Luke tells us is what? The veil is torn. So what we want to say, we never want to say more than the Scripture says if we can help it. So what we want to say is, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the evil, God makes His presence known. He does something that's spectacular that everyone, and even Jesus' enemies, have to acknowledge. And now what happens, we shift our attention to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And in verse 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, notice this is a very loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now again, it's very important that we don't impose our meaning on that text. In other words, I can say, well, what do you think that means? And you give me an opinion. You give me what you thought it meant. And oftentimes, 2,000 years later, we have developed all kinds of theology, and then we read a scripture, and we foist our theology upon the text. So I don't want to do that. Okay? So I'm always controversial in this. I know that. But I'm trying to be as precise as I can. I want to tell you, first of all, what I don't think it means. He says, Father, into your hand, verse 46, I commit my spirit. Okay? I don't think he means, Lord, I'm putting my soul into your spirit, uh, into your hands. Lord, okay, I'm going to die. I'm giving up my soul. Here's my soul. I take my soul and take it to heaven. I don't think he means that. You say, well, why don't you think that? Because Jews didn't have that kind of concept. Remember I told you that. Jews didn't have a concept that when you died, you went to heaven. Now, do we go to heaven when we die? Yes. But Jews didn't understand that concept. And um, they didn't have an idea of separation of soul and body. That came out of Greek philosophy. Okay? So what, what do I think Jesus is saying? Well, I'm pretty sure I know what he's saying. He's saying, in the midst of this desperate moment, I'm putting my life into your hands. You say, why in the world do you come up with that? Because this is a quote from Psalm 31.5. Now, we don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. But in the Psalm 31, you have a situation. It's a Psalm of David. He's going through a crisis. Now, guess what? David's not dying. He's just going through a crisis. He's in desperate shape. He's suffering. 
His enemies come against it. And you know what he says? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now he's not dying. He's not saying take my soul to heaven. What's he saying? Lord, in the midst of this, I'm committing my life into your hands. I need you to help me in this situation. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is a statement of faith. This is a statement of trust. Jesus is saying, here I am. People are all around me. I'm suffering. In this situation, Lord, I'm trusting you. Now, then what does he do in verse 46? He breathes his last. He dies. So what's he trusting God to do in the midst of this situation? What do you think he's trusting God to do? He said, I'm putting my life in your hands. And then after he says that, he goes, and he dies. What's he trusting God to do for him? Raising from the dead. Raising from the dead. See, Jesus has had a promise from the Father that if he died, what would God do? Raising from the dead. So he's putting his, committing his life to the Father, even in this dire situation, and he's uh, trusting him to uh, raise him from the dead. No one else believes that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, by the way. And that's something that you really need to understand. Now, Luke cast this story, and Jesus is dead. Luke cast this story in light of the onlookers. Okay? And you're going to get the reaction from three onlookers. This is very interesting. Here are the first two. Verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had happened, what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. Okay, now here are the first two reactions. We have two kinds of people. First of all, we have a soldier who's identified as a centurion. That means he's probably the guy who's in charge there at the crucifixion. And he's probably responsible for seeing that the crucifixion takes place. Second of all, in verse 47, you have a crowd. Just called the crowd. This is the same crowd that screamed out crucifying earlier with uh, the religious leaders. Okay, So you have two different people. These are the ones that wanted Jesus crucified. The soldier crucified him. The people wanted him crucified. Now Luke's going to make a comparison between the reaction of Christ's death upon a Gentile, the centurion, and upon a group of Jewish people. The reactions of Gentiles versus the Jewish people. Now watch what happens. Both of them have a similar situation. Look at verse 47. The centurion, look, Saul, you see that? The centurion saw. Look down at verse 48. The crowd who came together to that site saw, seeing something. Now, look what each one saw. Look in verse 47. The centurion saw what happened. Now look at the crowd, verse 48. Seeing what had been done. So they both saw something. They both saw the same thing. They saw what had happened. 
Now what had just happened? Well, we just saw it in verse 46. Jesus said, in the midst of dying, I commit my life into your hands, Father. He trusts. He doesn't cry out for his life. He doesn't ask to be spared. He doesn't scream in agony. He says, I commit my life into your hands, God. And then he dies calmly. Okay? That's what they saw happening right there. That's the context. But they each have a different reaction. Look at verse 47. Look what the centurion said. Surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was a righteous man. In fact, before that it says he glorified God, right? Look at that in verse 47. He glorified God. Would that be unusual for a Roman soldier? To glorify the God of Israel? I think so. Uh, why does he glorify God? Well, it doesn't say yet. Look what the Jewish crowd does. Verse 48. The crowd, seeing what had been done, they looked, beat their breast. Beat their breast. One glorifies God. Who does that? The Gentile. What's the Jewish crowd do? They beat their breast, which is a sign of grief, a sign of sorrow, a sign of uh, remorse. See, that's what they're doing. One is remorseful, the other is praising the Lord, which is very interesting. See? Now, so we have the centurion who is goes into a praise, and you have the crowd that beats their breast, which is a sign of mourning. Okay? And the result is, in verse 47, this centurion praises God, and he says, certainly this was a righteous man. When he sees what happens on the cross, he has insight into Jesus' character. He says this was a righteous man. That means this was a good man. This was a just man. This was an innocent man. Uh, look how he handled himself in these last moments of life. There was something extraordinary about this. This was a man of God. He hadn't seen anything. This was so remarkable to him. He has never. This is what happened. When this happened, we can't explain what happened on that cross when Jesus said that, but it must have been so remarkable that it gained everybody's attention, got everybody's attention. And the centurion had never seen anyone die like that. And he just says, starts praising the God of Israel and says, this was a righteous man. He gets insight into Jesus' character. But the Jews, when they see what happened, look what they do. They beat their breast. And they returned. They went home with their head hanging low, their tail between their legs. Because they get insight into their character. Suddenly when they realize how this guy died, they start realizing maybe we shouldn't have, maybe he was innocent. Maybe we shouldn't have crucified him. And so they start beating their breasts. They're sorry for what they have done. So it must have been an extraordinary situation. And I believe that both of these responses are positive. Both of those responses are good. For the centurion, he starts praising God, gets an insight into Jesus' character. This evil crowd that wanted him crucified, they're sorrowful. 
and they beat their breast, and they go home, they get insight into their character. Hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? <coughs> and this verse, these verses right here, set the stage in the book of Acts for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. It sets the stage for these people right here to hear the gospel when Peter preaches, the Jews, and get saved, and it sets the stage for Gentiles to get saved. In fact, the first Gentile who gets saved in Acts is a Roman what? Centurion. See, Luke, is, who writes Acts, puts that in here and tells us about a centurion who gets saved in Acts, and he wants you to see that link. Does that make sense to you? So that's what we have. So we have these two reactions. But we have a third reaction. There's a third group of onlookers. Look at verse 49. But, wait a second. Here we're going to see a contrast. Those first two responded in the right way. But, all of his acquaintances, all of his acquaintances, and the women who followed him from Galilee, now, who would these people be? These would be his friends, wouldn't they? His acquaintances? These would be his disciples. It would include the apostles. It would include those who followed him to the Passover feast. They believe he's their rabbi. And it particularly mentions the women. The key word, though, is the word but in verse 49. But. Uh, they react differently to the death of Christ. But his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, look what they did, stood at a distance watching these things. Now they too see what's happening. They too see Jesus' trust in the Father. They too see how he dies so calmly. But what strikes you about that verse? They watched these things, but they stood where? Now, does that remind you of anything? Someone who stands off afar and watches what's going on. Oh yes, look back at chapter 22 and verse 52. We looked at 22.53 just a moment ago. And... Uh, It's not actually 2252. I'm not sure where it is now, but it's Peter's situation. What did Peter do? He followed and he stood afar off. And I'm not sure where it is. 50, 54. 54. Having arrested him, they led him and they brought him into the high priest's house. But look at this. But Peter followed at a distance. Peter followed at a distance. Now look back at that verse that we were just looking at. And the women watched standing afar off. Now why did Peter follow at a distance? Was it for a good reason? I mean, he had a good reason, but it wasn't a good reason. <laughs> and why do these people watch at a distance? Why are they tentative? Same reason Peter's tentative. They don't want to cast their lot with Jesus because uh, he's dying. 
if they may end up getting arrested. They don't want to sell out to Jesus at this point. So Luke just tells us that their reaction was not as good as the others, but these people, they watched. But guess what? They didn't beat their breath. They didn't praise the Lord. They just were sort of a little bit aloof. And he leaves it there. Because he wants his readers. Theophilus, the man that he's writing to, right in chapter 1. Oh, Theophilus, this Greek man who's exploring Christianity. As he's telling the story, he wants Theophilus to say, Well, did they abandon him? Or did they sell out to Jesus? He sort of leaves you hanging there. Now what happens? They don't have any response. They just watch. A lot of Christians are like that, by the way. Now, what we have is we have Jesus' dead body hanging on a cross. His lifeless body hanging there. Crowd is dispersing. Look at verse 50. Now behold! Oh, wait a second. What does that mean? Hey, look! Wait, the crowd's leaving, but look, but look! Behold, there was a man named Joseph. Only one whose name is mentioned. A council member, a member of the Sanhedrin. A good and just man. So now the attention focuses on somebody that we're shocked to see there at the cross. A member of the Sanhedrin. And yet he is called a good and a just man. That word just is the exact same word that the centurion used to refer to Jesus as a righteous man in the Greek. It's the same word. They're both good people. It's sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? A member of the Sanhedrin being a good man. Huh? Isn't that an oxymoron? It's like saying an honest politician. <laughs> now you say, wait a second, that's not fair. Let me tell you why it's fair. The fact that you have to say he is an an honest politician proves something. Otherwise, you just say he's a politician, you'd assume that he's an honest politician. But the fact that you have to say he's an honest politician, what does that say? But many aren't. Okay, well, here's the same thing. Most of the Sanhedrin, they were ready to get rid of Jesus. But here's a good man. Here's a man who's fair. Here's a man who's just. And look how he's described in verse 51. This member of the Sanhedrin had not consented to to their decision and deed. When they said, let's vote to crucify him, they all raised their hand. But there was one man who was a dissenter. This man did not vote for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So that's very interesting. That's a man who stands against the crowd, isn't it? And then he was described as a man being from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. We have no idea where Arimathea is. Some people, there's all kinds of theories. Some think it's seven miles away. Others don't really know. But we know it's a Jewish city. And we also know that he is it's probably the place of his birth. Uh, but we know that he lives in Jerusalem now because he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and they meet on a regular basis. Okay? And then look how he's described. Who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. There is a man who understood the Old Testament. 
He believed that God was going to send his Messiah and the kingdom of God was going to come. So he's one of those faithful remnant among the Jewish people that really are looking for the kingdom of God. Whether he thought Jesus might be that Messiah or not, we don't know. But now, Jesus is dead. So, look what he does. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. It's a pretty strong move, isn't it? Uh, what was his disciples doing at this time? Where were they? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that guy's doing. Who is that guy? <laughs> so he says he wants the body of Jesus. Now, for Jews, burial was very important. We saw that in the message this morning. How Jacob wanted his body buried in, not in Egypt, in the other land, and Joseph's bones were carried to Egypt. And uh, burial was very important for the Jews, and they had all kinds of regulations over in Deuteronomy. There are regulations that say that a Jewish person who dies needs to be buried before the sun sets and all things like this. One reason was because of the climate being very hot and the body would deteriorate quickly. But they had a lot of other reasons for it. And when a Jew died of a crime, according to Deuteronomy, uh, that was considered serious business. That person was not looked upon with favor. Probably didn't even deserve a good burial. Uh, in fact, usually Jews who died of crimes, either, even in old Israel or in Rome, under Roman rule, uh, usually they didn't were paupers. They were so poor they couldn't afford a decent place to be buried and they were just thrown into some heat. But Joseph has a heart for God, and so he goes and he says, uh, give me the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, verse 53, and he wrapped it in linen. This is all temporary. And he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Uh, so this dead body is laid in this grave, which would have been hewn out of rock and a big stone, a disc would be rolled in front of it to seal off the tomb. Uh, we know some things about this man. First of all, he is, he is of elite status. He's a man who has money to own a tomb, or buy one, whichever the situation is. Luke doesn't tell us, but he owns it. We know that from other places. Uh, to have a brand new tomb like this means this man is of elite status. He belongs to the Sanhedrin. He's in the upper 5% uh, of the echelon as far as economics is concerned. Uh, we also know that uh, he's willing to pay a price for doing this. Uh, first of all, to touch this dead body means he's going to be unclean for seven days. And this is, this is a high, ho high holy holiday. This is a Passover. You never want to be dirty during the Passover. You want to be able to get into the temple and eat the Passover meal and sacrifice the lambs and all these kinds of things. So he's willing to, in a sense, become ritually unclean or impure. And he's going to pay a price because not only did he vote that Jesus not be crucified, but now he takes down this criminal's body and he's going to bury it in his own tomb. He's going to be ostracized. And uh, uh, he's going to pay a price for this. That day, verse 54 says, was the preparation. And the Sabbath drew near. Now if Jesus dies at 3 in the afternoon... 
and uh, Pol- uh, he goes to Pollitt, gets the body, it's getting 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, he has to get in to see Pollitt, uh, he has to get the body in, gr- in the ground before 6 o'clock, before the sun sets, because Friday afternoon is the preparation for the Sabbath. That's when you start fixing all your food for the Sabbath meal and, and uh, all these kinds of things. And you get dressed up in your wash and you do all kinds of things. So he had to get that body in the ground before 6 o'clock when the Sabbath struck on Friday night. And the Sabbath would go from sundown on Friday night to uh, sunset on Saturday. So that's why he just wraps it up. There's a whole process. You had to wash bodies. There's all kinds of things you had to do. All he did was basically wrap that body up uh, and put it in the tomb. He didn't have time to do too much. So he gets that body in the tomb. Now in verse 55 it says, And the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee... Now who are those women? Same ones up in verse 49 that stood at a distance. Guess what they're doing? They followed... And that means they followed at a distance. <laughs> they said, what's he doing with that body? Let's go see what he's doing. Ah, look, he's putting him in the tomb. They're watching this thing. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So uh, they saw what preparations that Joseph of Arimathea did and where they laid his body. And then they, that's the women, returned before sundown and they said, well, we'll get others' preparations. And they prepared the spices and the fragrant oils. And what they planned to do was wait till the Sabbath was over, go back to the tomb, and then complete the burial process with spices and sort of like, it's not embalming, but it's just so that the body doesn't smell and you have perfumes on it. And that's what they were planning on doing. So they go back and they said, well, we'll come here uh, after the Sabbath is over, and we will finish up uh, the preparation for the body. Uh, that's the least they can do for this guy that they followed and thought was the Messiah and was their rabbi. So they want to do this. And so then it says at the end of verse 56, and uh, so after they got all that finished, now here comes 6 o'clock, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment, according to the fourth commandment. Okay, so, here's the point. Jesus is dead. That's the point. That's what Luke wants you to see. How do we know he's dead? He's been buried. That's the proof that he's dead. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's what Luke wants us to see. And uh, he wants us to realize uh, when we read this, it looks like all hopes are dashed. Uh, No one thought that the Messiah could die. Uh, That's proof that he's not the Messiah. We thought he was the Messiah. He'd overthrow Rome, but he dies. Uh, He doesn't meet our expectations. Uh, That's why they stand back. Well, we thought he might be the Messiah, but... He didn't meet our expectations. He didn't overthrow Rome. They overthrew him. And uh, he's dead. Uh, no need to get too close. Let's just stand back. We don't want to end up getting arrested for nothing now. We thought he was he's a good guy. We liked him. He was our friend. But look, not the Messiah. So that's why they stood back. It looks like darkness has triumphed in this situation. 
There's no inkling that Jesus will be raised from the dead. No one standing there. None of these people are thinking resurrection. You say, oh, well, maybe they were. What are they getting spices ready for then? They're not thinking resurrection. No inkling whatsoever of resurrection. They are all sad. The Roman centurion, he said, a good man's been crucified. You know, I ordered the crucifixion. He was a just man. I haven't seen people die like that ever. I've supervised scores of crucifixions. No one's died like that. He's, he was trusting in the Jewish God. Oh, listen to him, Yahweh. Listen to this man, this good man. He was sad that a good man had to die. The crowd, they were sad. They beat their breast. Oh, we shouldn't have voted. We shouldn't have said crucify, crucify. Uh, maybe we made a mistake. Joseph of Arimathea said, this guy's going to be thrown on a heap. Everybody deserves a decent burial. At least that's what I can do for this man, this, this good man. And the women, well, they're sad too. They said, well, this guy had to prepare that body quickly. We'll get some more spices and perfumes and then when the Sabbath is over, we'll go back and uh, we'll take care of the body. That's <laughs> at least what we can do for our, our friend. And by the way, uh, there's no mention of Jesus' opponents. The bad guys, the other members of the Sanhedrin, no mention of them. The high priest, they're represented by the term and darkness filled the area. And it looks like darkness is won. It looks like they've won. Uh, They've gone back to their own homes. Maybe they're even having a meeting after this whole thing's over. And they're saying, well, <clears throat> let's get, we'll, we'll, we'll observe the Sabbath. And then uh, on Sunday morning, uh, we'll get back to business as usual. Uh, we got things back under control. <coughs> and they think that uh, uh, they've won the victory. But what they will discover is that their victory is short. Because God has heard that prayer that Jesus uttered. I commit my life to you. Amen. And he's going to answer it. And on Sunday morning, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. And their victory is going to be short because a new era is about to begin. A new day is dawning. And that's where we'll pick up next week with the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you when we can just look at it as the people standing there looked at it and read it uh, as, uh, and interpret it as they interpret the events. It becomes so rich. Help us to see this. And help us, Lord, to realize that uh, when we stand in times of crisis, uh, we can throw ourselves upon you, and we can trust you for the outcome. Uh, Jesus died. It looked like uh, his prayer had not been answered. You answered it after he died. And Lord, sometimes we go through crisis and times of suffering and times of mourning and it looks like you haven't even heard our prayer, but you have. And you will answer. And ultimately, we too, like Jesus, will be raised from the dead and enter your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this word, this, this pre-Easter message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.